Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing this morning? Awesome. A couple of us are doing amazing this morning. I want to welcome you to Frontline. Like Blake said, my name is Brad. And if you're joining us on Facebook Live from somewhere warm, we love you. And we're jealous of you right now. Um, I'm filling in this morning for Brian, who's our lead pastor. Um, he's in the tropical state of Indiana this morning. And so you can all be really jealous of him. I want to start by sharing a story with you this morning. This is a story of a teenager who walked into his church and he had a few questions for his pastor. And so he walks up to his pastor and he says, Pastor, if I hold up a finger, does God know ahead of time which finger I'm gonna hold up? The pastor said, yes, son, God knows everything. He knows what finger you're gonna hold up ahead of time. So the teenager sat there and he thought about it for a second. And then he pulled out a copy of Life magazine. And on the cover of this magazine were kids from around the world who didn't have access to clean water, who didn't have adequate nutrition in places like Africa and other third world regions of the world. And he said, Pastor, if God knows what finger I'm gonna hold up ahead of time, does God know also about these kids and their suffering? And the pastor looked at this teenager kind of dismissively and he said, son, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows everything and he knows about them too. And that teenager walked out of that church that day, never again to return to worship at a Christian church. He wasn't satisfied with his pastor's answer. And you may know this kid in his name. He goes by the name Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs, the founder the CEO, the visionary, the innovator of Apple, the one who's largely credited with making Apple the successful company that it is. Steve walked out of his church that day never again to return to a church. And if I were to look at Steve's life and the way that he ran his company, two words come to mind. Think different. Even as a young kid, Steve thought differently. He saw things that other people didn't see. He thought in ways that other people didn't think, and he acted in ways where other people wouldn't act, even reflected in the questions that he asked his pastor. At one point in his career, Steve is credited for saying this. He says, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, you can disagree with them, you can glorify or vilify them, but the only thing you cannot do is ignore them because they change things. They push the human race forward while some see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Steve Jobs is a person who has always thought differently. And what if God, what if the ones that God uses for his purposes are the ones who are willing to think just a little bit differently? 
What if the people that God uses the most are the ones that are willing and able to look at cultural norms and reject them for the sake of bringing his presence and goodness into the world? What if the ones that God uses are the ones who are even able to look at certain norms and unhealthy patterns in our churches and faith communities and reject those for looking more like Jesus? What if those are the people that God uses? The ones who are willing to think differently. Like Blake said earlier, we're in the story of Ruth this morning and Ruth is a beautiful, transformative story. And when Ruth opens, we're introduced to one of the main characters of the story. Her name is Naomi. And Naomi's story throughout the book of Ruth is a story of transformation. Why? Because there were people in Naomi's life that God used who thought differently than the world around them. You see, when we meet Naomi, she lives in the period of the judges. The period of the judges is a dark, dark period in Israel's history. It can best be summed up in the words, in those days Israel had no king, and so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The period of the judges in Israel was a period of radical individualism. It was a period of uh, excessive rape and abuse. It's a period of murder and violence and famine and poverty and basically everything that's dark about our culture existed in the period of the judges. But this wasn't secular culture out there. This was God's covenant community that looked like this and they were virtually unrecognizable from the people that God had called them to be. This is the world that Naomi lived in. And when we meet Naomi in the story, she has lost her home because of this famine. And so she's displaced in a place called Moab. She's lost her home. And if that's not bad enough, her sons then marry two Moabite women named Ruth and Orpah. Now that might not sound like a big idea to us or a big deal to us, but the Moabites and the Israelites were pretty much like mortal enemies, right? Like the people of Moab was born out of incest between Lot and his daughters. Women in Moab in numbers led Israelite men astray and the offspring of those relationships were banned from the assembly of God for 10 generations. If you remember the story of the talking donkey in scripture, that was the prophet Balaam sent by the king of Moab to go curse the Israelites and God opened the donkey's mouth in much what I would imagine sounds like Eddie Murphy's voice in Shrek to warn Balaam against it. During the period of the judges, a king of Moab oppressed the Israelites. These two groups of people are not exactly friends with each other, and yet Naomi's sons take wives in Moab. And so she loses her home, her sons marry foreign wives, and next her husband passes away. Naomi loses her husband, and a husband dying for a woman like that is a sure life of destitution. She doesn't have a lot of status as a widow in that culture. But if that's not bad enough, next she loses her two sons. And so over and over and over again, Naomi is feeling the weight of chaos in this world that she lives in. And when we see her, she is a profile of hopelessness 
in bitterness. In fact, one of the first times that she speaks in the book, she says this in chapter one, verse 20 to 21. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. You know what Naomi means? It means sweet. And Naomi's saying, don't call me sweet anymore. Call me bitter because this is my identity. This is my life. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. When we meet Naomi, she feels the weight of chaos in her world. And it leads her to a place of hopelessness and bitterness. Maybe you've been there too. Maybe you are there today where chaos seems to reign in your world and you feel the weight of bitterness and hopelessness right now. And the beautiful part of the story of Ruth is that God meets Naomi directly in that place and he uses people people who are willing to think different to bring about transformation. And one of those people is perhaps one of the most unlikely in the entire story. One of Naomi's daughters-in-law, the Moabite woman, Ruth. Naomi's political and cultural and ethnic enemy. God uses Ruth to bring about this transformation in Naomi's life. And so when we meet Ruth, Naomi and Orpah and her are headed back to Bethlehem from Moab. And what Naomi says to her daughters-in-law is she says, don't come with me to Bethlehem. Stay in Moab because that is where there's a life for you. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. Even if I were to have two sons again tomorrow, you'll be old by the time they're old enough to get married. There's nothing for you in Bethlehem. And so what happens here next is just astounding. Watch what Ruth does when Naomi tells her to go back to Moab. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, moved to Chicago, launched her own talk show, and became a billionaire. <laughs> I did hear, this has nothing to do with anything, Oprah's name was supposed to be Orpah, but they misspelled it on her birth certificate. So there's a piece of completely useless knowledge for you to take home with you today. Where was it? Okay, back here. So then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Why would Ruth go? Why would Ruth leave a life behind in Moab that offered more for her than a life with Naomi in Bethlehem? We don't know exactly why Ruth made the decision to go with Naomi, but what seems to be true is that Ruth operates out of an abundance mindset. 
Ruth doesn't operate out of a desire to see her own self and well-being preserved. Ruth operates out of a mindset that is extremely kind towards Naomi. A kindness that was unheard of during that time. A kindness that transcends their culture and their norms. A kindness that is just outstanding. Ruth operates out of this abundance mindset and I cannot help but think as I look at our culture that many of us are conditioned day after day after day to do just the opposite. To live out of this place of scarcity. A scarcity mindset says I have to protect what is mine. I have to protect what I've earned. It's all about self-preservation. It is a kingdom of this world mentality. If you're not sure what I mean when I talk about a scarcity mindset, turn on the news for five minutes. Look at the way that political campaigns are run in our country. It is almost entirely about scarcity, almost exclusively. You see, on the left, the conversation often looks like, you see those people over there, those conservatives? They want to steal your reproductive rights from you. You see those business owners? They want to steal what is rightfully yours as a working class person. It is all about scarcity and protecting yourself. On the right, the same thing happens. You see those people over there? They want to steal from you what you have earned through your hard work. You see those immigrants and those poor people, they want to mooch off of you and steal from you what you have earned. Hate them, hate them. They are not like you. And yet Ruth, the Moabite, the most unlikely person in the entire story, lives out of abundance towards even her cultural and political enemies. Because an abundance mindset looks different. An abundance mindset isn't so focused on what people are trying to steal from me. An abundance mindset focuses on how God is providing for me. An abundance mindset is all about elevating and lifting other people up. This is the stuff that the kingdom of God is made of. And it's where we are forced to reject some of the binaries that our culture pushes us into for a different way, a better way, a way that looks more like Jesus. Because when we live out of scarcity, we are less empathetic. We are less compassionate. We're less others focused. We're less Jesus in the world. So even as I've wrestled through this in my own life, I cannot help but ask the question, are you living out of scarcity? Or like Ruth, are you living out of abundance? In your generosity, in your finances, are you living out of scarcity or are you living out of a place of abundance? In the way you interact with other people that may not look like you, are you acting out of scarcity or are you acting out of an abundant mindset? Ruth is quite literally living in a time of scarcity and yet her kindness towards Naomi shows that she is someone who lives out of abundance. But she's not the only one who lives out of abundance in this story. There's another person that we're introduced to in the story whose outrageous generosity and abundance is astounding. His name is Boaz. Boaz is a landowner 
in this time, and he has a harvest. And look at how Boaz lives out of abundance in the second chapter of Ruth here. So Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? She's talking about Ruth. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab. Notice how he doesn't even use her name. She's that person. She's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short, time, a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go ahead and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Speaking of thirsty, I'm going to take a drink really quick here. And so why is Ruth there? Why is she there in Boaz's field? Well, they're practicing something in this time called gleaning. And that might sound kind of like a weird thing for us today, but basically what gleaning was, is it was this idea that God had set up for his covenant community, for his people, where if you owned a harvest, you were required by God's law to leave the outer edges of your harvest and to leave behind the scraps that might have fallen as you're harvesting. Why are you required to do that? So that the poor and the foreigner and the marginalized can come into your harvest and help themselves so that they can survive. God's very vision for his covenant people was a system that protected the poor and the vulnerable. This was God's heart towards the marginalized in the Old Testament. And in a time where everyone does what is right in his own eyes, in the period of the judges, many of these laws were disregarded because many of these people were living out of a scarcity mindset. And so the fact that Boaz even has his land open for gleaning shows how much he thinks differently than the world around him. Shows how much he stands as a contrast to what was normal in his society. And so Ruth is here and she's gleaning. And if that's not enough, Boaz takes it one step further. And he says, Ruth, stay only here. Don't go to another field. Stay here, I'll offer you food and water and protection and safety and all of these things. And so Boaz is an incredible picture of kindness towards a foreigner, towards an outsider, towards Ruth. At this point in the story, Boaz and Ruth are literally in an all-out war of kindness against each other. 
Like, if they keep going, they're going to literally kill each other with kindness. I mean, it's just back and forth, back and forth. The reason that Boaz offers Ruth protection is because Ruth went with Naomi from Moab in the first place. So they're like literally this back and forth exchange of kindness here, kindness there. Like they're lobbying it back and forth in a world where kindness was not the norm for people to live out. But at this point, Ruth and Naomi, they need to make a plan for what their long-term sustainable option is. Like, this is great that we can glean here and now, but we need to figure out what our long-term life is going to look like. And so they make a plan where, they ask, where they're going to ask Boaz to be the family's guardian, redeemer. And again, this is another law that God had set up for his people, where if there was some kind of catastrophe that happened to a family, whether it be a death, death or famine or something like that, the closest relative was required to step in and redeem that situation. If God's heart for the vulnerable and the poor and the oppressed in our world is not coming through in these scriptures, it's so evident, it's so there. And so Boaz, Ruth, Ruth and Naomi decide Ruth is going to present herself to Boaz. And so this next section is a little bit weird here. There's some kind of weird cultural stuff happening, uh, but let's wade through it together. And so in the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned and there was a woman lying at his feet. How many of you would be startled if there was a strange woman lying at your feet at night? Just me? Okay. A couple of us. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me like you do, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. What is Boaz talking about here? He's talking about Ruth leaving Moab to come with Naomi to Bethlehem. And he's saying, this right now, what you're doing right now, offering yourself to me, is an even greater kindness than you leaving your home to come here with Naomi. Why? Well, according to Jewish tradition, Boaz was almost twice the age of Ruth. Many believe that he was sterile at this point in his life. And so for Naomi and Ruth to be able to have offspring, Boaz may not have been the best option for Ruth to go towards. And yet Ruth agrees with Naomi to go pursue him as the guardian redeemer of their family. You see, this word that the text uses for kindness is the word chesed. And I talked about this word from stage a couple weeks ago. Chesed is the same word that is used to describe the heart of God throughout Scripture. It's this loving kindness, this steadfast love, this kindness towards every generation, this faithfulness. And Boaz said, This chesed is greater than that which you showed earlier. Ruth is a picture of countercultural kindness, a kindness that thinks differently. A kindness that sees differently. A kindness that moves differently. And I absolutely love what happens next in the story. I mean, I think this is like the pinnacle, the crux of the story. Watch how Boaz responds at Ruth's request. He says, And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, 
There is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. Spoiler alert, the guy doesn't want to do it. The other guy. When he finds out he has to marry a Moabite, he's like, nope, thanks, I'm good. And so then Boaz says, but if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. What is happening here is absolutely beautiful. Boaz first prays a prayer of blessing over Ruth because of how kind she is. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just stop at praying a blessing of kindness over Ruth. What Boaz agrees to do is to become the active agent of God's loving kindness towards Ruth and Naomi. He agrees to step in and become the active participant in God's redeeming plan for Ruth and Naomi. So if the entire story of the book of Ruth can be summed up kind of in one sentence, I would say it's this, that God works through people who practice countercultural kindness. God works through people who practice countercultural kindness. God in this story doesn't actually do anything directly. We don't hear him speak. We don't see him move directly like we do in many parts of scripture. But what we do see in the story of Ruth is that God moves through people to bring his loving kindness into the world. And sometimes that means rejecting what is normal and being willing and able to think differently. And what's so beautiful about this story, what's so compelling is that the story ends in Naomi's complete and total transformation. Her story is redeemed because of the actions of a Moabite outsider woman like Ruth and a kind man like Boaz. Watch what happens here in the final chapter of Ruth. And so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. Do you remember the language Naomi used about God in the beginning of the story? I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has made my life very, very bitter. The Almighty has turned against me, and yet here, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. If that is not a countercultural statement, I don't know what is. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. God moves through people. He moves through people that are willing to think differently, willing to see differently, willing to act differently than the world around them. See, we live in a world today where kindness is not a virtue. Where kindness is viewed as weakness, 
where empathy is viewed as compromise. And yet this story gives us an incredible picture of what happens when people are willing to think differently. And so what does countercultural kindness look like for us today? What does it look like for us as people, for us as the church, to embody God's loving kindness in the world? Well, it moves far beyond just surface level niceness. What I think it looks like that we can pull from the story of Ruth here is it transcends the boundaries we put up between people. The story of Ruth is all about kindness between an Israelite man and woman and a Moabite woman. In fact, at one point in the story, Ruth asked Boaz, why are you being so kind to me? I'm a Moabite, I'm a foreigner, I'm an outsider. What you're doing doesn't make sense. And yet, how often in our world today do we let the boundaries that are put up between people, whether it be racial boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, political or even boundaries of countries get in the way of how we exemplify God's kindness to the world? Countercultural kindness today transcends the fake boundaries that we put up between people. The second thing that it looks like is it moves us beyond tolerance to a place of love. If you might remember, a few years ago, there was a shooting at Pulse Nightclub, a gay nightclub in Orlando, Florida. And 49 people, 49 people made in the image of God and loved dearly by him, lost their lives that day. And I'll never forget just the grief that I felt inside when that happened. Because if there's any community of people that I think the church often views as outsiders, it's the gay community. It's the LGBT community. And I knew in this moment that many people in this community were on their knees just rattled from what had happened. And so I reached out to some friends of mine that are gay. And the only thing I said is I said, I love you, I am grieving with you, please let me know if you need anything. And I don't share that story to kind of make myself look like a hero of kindness because I am learning and still very much a work in progress with this. But the reason I share that story is because I will never forget their response. Their response back to me was, Brad, I'm crying right now because I have never heard the words, I love you, come from a Christian before. Guys, we as the church are called to be God's agents of kindness in the world. And after that shooting, there were so many calls for increased tolerance and more tolerance, but I don't think what we're called to is tolerance. We're called to a place of love because tolerance says you do your thing over there and I'll do mine and let's keep those walls up. Love actively moves towards people. Love engages people. Love goes to the hard and the messy places, and this is what countercultural kindness looks like. And then the last one is countercultural kindness, and it comes at a cost. Think about what Ruth gave up for the sake of being kind to people like Ruth, Naomi. It cost her her life, her livelihood, her future in Moab. It comes at a a cost. 
living out of an abundance mindset, sometimes it costs us in the area of our finances. Sometimes it costs us in the area of our own pride or our own ability to be right or prove a point to people that we may disagree with. Living out God's loving kindness in the world comes at a cost. And as we look at each of these three things, we see the heart of Ruth, an outsider, a foreigner who embodied this. We see the heart of Boaz, an Israelite man who in a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, embodied countercultural kindness. But you know who we ultimately see this in? Their descendant, Jesus. Jesus, who is the ultimate agent of God's kindness in the world, lived this out every single day. His ministry was all about transcending the boundaries that were put up between people. He crossed every political boundary, every cultural boundary, every gender gap, every socioeconomic status boundary. He crossed all of it. Jesus didn't live out tolerance, he lived out love a kind of love that got down to people's level in the midst of their pain. A kind of love that went to a Samaritan woman living in sin and said, I see you and I love you. And of course, Jesus' kindness came at great cost to himself. A loving kindness that laid down his life for you and for me. And this is the heart of God towards you. And this is us. That when we were unworthy, when we were undeserving, God showed his kindness towards us. And as a result, we are called as his people to be agents of that loving kindness in the world, to go to the hard places, to go to the hard people, to go to what many consider outsiders, and to be counterculturally kind to them. I want to close this morning with a quote that I was sent to me this last week from a president of a Christian university. And I think this just so perfectly encapsulates what it looks like to live out this idea of kindness in our world today. It says, the way of kindness comes with risks. The way of kindness is vulnerable and unsafe. The way of kindness should not expect a thank you. And it might even receive a rebuke. Living this way means taking initiative and sometimes stepping into a pile of rejection. The way of kindness is other-centered and not me-centered, which is the hardest place of all. The way of kindness is always selfless and often awkward. So the application this week is really simple. Not easy, but simple. On your way in, you received a card that says, this is us. And what this card this week challenges you to go do is to go find the outsider and to spread God's loving kindness to them. 
It might look different depending on what your life looks like, what your job looks like. Maybe it's at your work. Maybe it's the person on the street corner. Maybe it's somebody in your very own family. Go find one person this week. And just like Ruth and Boaz, live out God's counter-cultural kindness to them. Let's pray together. God, this morning we come before you and we simply acknowledge that you were first kind to us. A kindness that transcended every boundary, every boundary that sin and shame could try to set up. You passed through those so that we could know you. And so God, we thank you for your kindness. God, as recipients of your kindness, may we be the type of people that desire to spread that same loving kindness to the rest of the world. And may people experience your love and your transformation as a result of that. God, we love you. And the only reason we love you is because you first loved us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.